Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome back, Cracked fans, to another edition of the Cracked Interviews Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Got a slightly different version of the show for you today. Now, normally, you Cracked Rackets listeners are used to hearing our Getting to the Point episodes where we focus on the importance of nutrition and fitness in the modern tennis game uh, on our mini break feeds on Thursday. Of course, we are so excited to continue to do these episodes with our friends at Aerobar. So many great guests along the way, right? People like Jay Berger, Bjorn Fratangelo, Lauren Embry, and uh, you know, you can go on and on and on. Michael Russell. It's just been such a pleasure to get these have these conversations and we've got another spectacular guest for you this week in former top 10 singles and doubles player on the WTA tour a player who reached multiple Grand Slam finals during her career Brenda Schultz McCarthy joins the show today and it's a really fun conversation we obviously cover her career I ask her why she think you know why her generation of players people such as you know so many talents Sabatini uh, Mary Jo Fernandez Conchita Martin uh, Monica Sellis, why they were able to have so much success at a young age on tour. I talk about what it's like to compete with a group of peers like that, the similarities she sees between her group of peers and all the talented young players on the WTA tour, how they push one another to have further success. And then, of course, we pick her brain on that importance of nutrition, of fitness in the modern game of tennis, where she talks about the things she did in her career that she wished she could have back, the things she advises her players to do now. It's a really fascinating conversation, and the reason I say, again, it's a special edition, usually these Getting to the Point episodes are on our Thursday mini-break podcast. Now, you know, this week, the entire tennis world's attention being taken up by the Western and Southern Open, and so we're going to reserve the mini-break feed for those recap pods, Jamie McDonald and I, each and every day thus far, recapping all of the action. If you want to hear about that, of course, go check out that feed. If you want to hear some preview content, of what you can expect at the U.S. Open this year. We've already done our three most interesting women, three uh, dark horses in the WTA women's singles for the U.S. Open with Ben Rothenberg and Mark Lucero. Men's content coming up on the back half of this week. And of course, we've still got draw breakdowns to come and so much more. So be sure to listen to this podcast, the Mini Break Podcast, the Great Shot Podcast. You don't want to miss any of our content. You know, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Check out our website, crackrackets.com, as we do our best to keep all of you tennis fans in the loop on everything that is going on in the tennis world. Of course, the reason we are able to do that here on the Cracked Interviews podcast is because of the support we get from our friends at Aerobar and Midwest Sports, and you know the deal with Aerobar. We talk about it every time now on these Getting to the Point episodes. It's the only tennis-specific energy bar in the business, and you're all about to hear Brenda Schultz-McCarthy explain why you know so many tennis players, they struggle with what to put in their body. There just aren't a lot of great options, and 
She is a major endorser of Aerobar. She makes the case far better than I ever could. So I'll simply say this. If it's good enough for Brendan Schultz-McCarthy, if Brenda Schultz-McCarthy, if it's good enough for Bjorn Fatangel, if it's good enough for Jay Berger, Michael Russell, it's absolutely good enough for you. So be sure to go check out aerobar.com. Choose between delicious cinnamon, honey, oat, and chocolate chip flavors. And then use our promo code CRACKED15. You'll get 15% off your order. You'll let them know we sent you there. And I'm telling you, you're going to feel energized on the court. It's just the right sort of pick-me-up you want to start your day. Aerobar.com. The promo code is CRACKED15. Of course, I also implore you, go to MidwestSports.com. Take advantage of their Western and Southern Open giveaway. By the time you're hearing this podcast, you'll have one more day, one more chance to give yourself a shot at four free tickets to the 2021 Western and Southern Open. You also have a shot to win some free gear still as well. And of course, at Midwest Sports, you get all of your equipment needs fulfilled from shirts, shoes, shorts, to rackets, strings, grips, grommets, you name it, they've got it. Go to MidwestSports.com. Use our promo code CR15. You'll get 15% off your order. You'll get free two shipping on all orders, uh, free shipping on all two, uh, all free two-day shipping on all orders. There it is, exceeding $75. And best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. Midwest Sports want to ensure you have everything you need to make your return to the tennis court a successful one. So go to MidwestSports.com. Use that promo code CR15. With that being said, again, it's not every day you get to talk to a top 10 player in both women's singles and doubles. It's not every day you get to talk to someone who's just as enjoyable, as exceptional of a storyteller as Brenda Schultz-McCarthy. And I keep saying this, folks, but you know, I tweeted this out. This might have been one of my favorite podcasts, certainly of 2020, but you know, maybe I have ever done. I think she's that enjoyable of a guest. I'm really looking forward to all of you listeners hearing it. So without further ado, let's get to our conversation with Brenda Schultz-McCarthy. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Joining us on today's podcast is a two-time Grand Slam finalist, a player who reached the top 10 in both singles and doubles during her professional career, Brenda Schultz-McCarthy. Brenda, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. Beautiful day here in Virginia. I am in the Blue Ridge Mountains, so very nice here. Yeah, that sounds beautiful. And of course, for all of us tennis fans, it's been a beautiful week because we have pro tennis back in our lives, ATP, WTA action at the Western and Southern Open. Curious, are you someone who uh, is still watching a lot of tennis at this point? Um, not really, no. I, uh, <laughs> I'm normally at the US Open at this time, <clears throat> but I normally travel there. But on television, I don't, I don't watch too much. I just normally... <laughs> Maybe watch the highlights, something like that. <laughs> no, can completely understand that. Is it weird for you to not get to travel to the U.S. Open this year? When was the last time you didn't go to an Open? Um, now nah, you're right. I normally, because I haven't gone to many other Grand Slams. I did go two years ago to Wimbledon to coach a girl, Lauren Davis. But 
um, in general, I only the only Grand Slam I pretty much go to every year is the U.S. Open. So it is kind of weird that uh, time flies, that it's already that time, and that uh, I'm staying put at the farm. I definitely stay busy here because we we do have people coming in here, probably against all the regulations. But yeah. <laughs> Uh, no, hey, as long as you're staying busy, right? At this point, it's been five and a half months just staying sane, whatever it takes um, at this point. But obviously, we are so excited to have you on the podcast for so many reasons today. Uh, you had uh, such an incredible career that we want to explore. But, you know, on this podcast, we also take the time to explore the importance of fitness, nutrition in the modern game. And, you know, obviously, one of the things that jumps out in your career by, you know, the age of 18, you had already reached a fourth round of a grand slam in singles you had already you know cracked the top 50 reached a mixed doubles grand slam final uh let's just start there how does someone you know uh, put themselves in a position to have that much professional success at such a young age what was working for you so well early in your career um yeah it's i guess there's a few things you know it's like a puzzle and every time you find a missing piece of the puzzle and uh i mean i started playing tennis when i was eight and it was just very recreational level and then um and then when i was 11 um really by playing a lot against the wall um my, my parents didn't really have the, the the financial uh funds to to give me a lot of lessons so i, I was i was hitting against the wall a lot with my sister my sister's five years older and it was like a, a school wall, brick wall across from our street. And I would literally play on that for hours. And I'm, I'm still always, the way I play, I'll hit a drop shot, I'll hit a tweener. So I, I, would, I would practice those things against the wall over and over. And then when I was 11, um, I suddenly won the Dutch championships under 12, very un- unexpected because I wasn't... Um, practicing with all the top juniors at the time that that would put a lot more effort or, or got a lot more training but I already I, I guess I was just born with a talent and that was my serve already at 11 years old very powerful uh, already very intimidated serve at that time but I can hear from people saying uh, and that kind of got me a lot of free points got me in a position to to win a lot of points uh, quick without many rallies without being steady from the baseline and doing all of those things um, so so at 11 years old they uh, I won the Dutch championships uh, Richard Crytek won a two under 12 now he did play a lot more tennis than I did um, and uh, he, he was just lucky he had a, a tennis coach that that will do a lot for free for him because his parents didn't have the finances either but they kind of sponsored him and then when we both won the championships, that's when the people that were helping Richard out start helping me out. And it was the Adidas school in Amsterdam. And I was 12 years old. And from 12 to 15, for those three years, I just had a very good group of people around me. And obviously, Richard Krycek won Wimbledon. Um, so we we both got very lucky with the the like you said the physical training i don't think i had the health part down at that point my parents did the best they could but <laughs> um, like eating wise 
but but uh, physically the coach was uh, was a player for the Dutch soccer team that that was our physical coach he he played for Ajax what was one of the best soccer teams in Holland and then as a tennis uh, coach as technical we had a, a guy called Kees Howling and he uh, was the ball boy for a coach that coached Tom Ocker and Betty Stove and Betty Stove was three in the world, was the one, the best tennis player in Holland uh, so far. And Tom Ocker was also, I think, his best ranking was three in the world. And they were obviously, you know, many years older than, than me and Richard. They were probably about um, 30 years older than me and Richard. But this coach had all this knowledge and that he gave uh, not just me and Richard, it was eight kids in the group. Uh, six boys, two girls, and we we just all had uh, tremendous results. And yeah, that kind of got me as as a young girl from from 12 to 15, and uh, not by playing that much tennis. I mean, it was only we probably had the lessons were probably about yeah three times a week, two hours, and and one time private, so about seven hours a week. What's kind of unheard of, but the hours that we got was a very very good level of coaching mm -hmm. now and you know so much there i want to explore first of all i can also say you learn new things you wouldn't expect along the way so it's ix is how you pronounce the soccer team because for years i've called it ajax like 100%. yeah yeah and in dutch we say ah for the a so yes it's it's ajax in in english yes ajax in, in dutch <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm not going to make that mistake moving forward, though. It's Ajax. I love to hear that. But you sort of mentioned it, and I think anyone who knows your game knows, yes, you were blessed with that golden shoulder, that ability to hit just a bomb of a serve whenever you needed it on a big point. And, you know, certainly, uh, as you mentioned, some of that you just can't teach. But for you, at uh, you, know, you sort of mentioned by 11, you already had the serve rocking and rolling. For someone who's playing mostly on the wall, for someone, you know, I can only imagine you're hitting that serve against the wall. That second ball must have been a lot of fun. But, um, you know, how did you get, you know, how much of it was God given? How much of it was just repetition after repetition to get your serve to that point where it was such a weapon? Now, it's, it's, um, it's funny. My dad was, was known to, um, my dad, my dad was known for a very fast arm too. In the army of all places, he could, throw a grenade and everybody else would have to duck and and he could just pretty much see it explode what i hear from his friends so it, it uh you know it's kind of in the genes so since i was a, a little girl my sister wanted nothing to do with it but he would always throw the ball with me if it was a baseball if it was um, all all you know soccer ball he was a very good soccer player too and um, so he he always went out with me and and through through uh, the baseball and then he would measure. I think it was you know his his golden years were over. I think so he would still train with me and measure how far I could throw a ball. And that little that he knew that I was going to have the fastest serve in tennis, um, he was just throwing the ball and measuring how far I could throw a ball. So in the beginning it was like forty meters in Dutch, you know, it's probably about 40 yards and I got 50 yards, 60 yards and then I got to 80 yards, what was unheard of. And he would always take his friends to the beach and say, look how far my daughter can throw a ball. 
And um, so, so that kind of developed into a surf. Um, he started playing tennis and my mom started playing tennis the same time me and my sister started playing tennis. He, he was hoping for two boys and he got two girls. And uh, so in Holland, when you were a girl, you were not playing soccer and he wanted two soccer players. So he kind of gave up on that. And this one guy in his job said, hey, Jan, you know, why don't you take the girls playing tennis at the tennis club here in, in Amsterdam? And, uh, you know, pick it up yourself. It's a fun sport. So we all kind of started at the same time. And, at, and when I was eight, I was too young to, to actually play on the court at this club. You had to be nine. So that's kind of where my love of the wall started. Because then he was like, okay, my sister got to be on the tennis court. And, uh, and I had to play against the wall. So he would say, if you make it to 10, you get an ice cream. If you make it to 20, you know, you know how it goes. <laughs> so I liked ice cream. So, you know, <laughs> and then when everybody finished playing tennis at the courts and everybody in Holland, it's a big thing that people eat dinner at the, at the club. There's like a clubhouse and there's dinner, drinks, and they would all go inside. And then I took the ball hopper and sneaked on the court and was playing serves because there was nobody to hit with me. So I would just practice my serve over and over and over. And then everybody started coming outside on the deck and said, wow, you girl can hit a serve. And at that point, it was far from being in all the time, but it was fast because I had that fast arm. And I think, um, you know, it just developed after when I said I had that luck to have those very good tennis coaches in my life, uh, technical wise. So then with the arm, came the technical part at like around 11, 12, that it really, um, you know, and then even later in my career, it was kind of funny when I started working with Juan Nunes, my toss was all over the place. And this is when I'm already 30 in the world. And I had to practice about 10 minutes a day to get my toss in the right spot. And I, I was kind, I don't know if people are familiar, obviously with Coco Vendaway, it was a very similar motion. My arm was kind of hooking back um and it wasn't going straight out like richard has that nice motion straight out so i had to practice that at 30 in the world and part of the reason you know i made it to top 10 lots of reasons you know but we'll get into that but part of the reason was that serve motion that became more consistent and the toss became more consistent and um yeah the outcome became more consistent and you know that helped a lot Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. You say your dad was throwing grenades. One could argue you were also tossing grenades with that serve. It was, you know, uh, obviously so impressive. And I do want to give Mark some room to ask some questions. So I'll take the floor back in the second. My last one for you for now, um, you know, coming up through the rankings, there's a and we see it right now. There's this generation of great players, Kenan and Osaka and Andrescu and, you know, Anisimova, Yastrzemska, Goff, obviously, so many young players achieving such success so early in their career they're all pushing one another for you you know in 1988 there's this group it's obviously you're having success but you know there's Sabatini there's Conchita Martinez uh Mary Jo Fernandez eventually Monica Seles Sanchez Vicario uh for you uh, did it help to have fellow players your age also having success early in their pro careers and you know how did that push you early on yeah for sure i mean when when i was last year watching coco um coco goff 
and uh, everybody's like, man, she's 16, she's amazing. I said, now, when I was playing, everybody seemed to be 16 in the top 10. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, I was old by being 18, 19. So, yeah, it, it, it's pluses and minuses, you know, when you're that young. Sure, I mean, my best friend on the tour was Adanza Sanchez, and then I started playing when I was 24, I started playing doubles with uh, Sabatini, Gabriela. And that became my best friend at that time. And we played doubles for a couple of years. Uh, and obviously, they were. Aranza was a year younger than me, and, and Gabi was exactly the same age as me. Uh, Steffi was, uh, I think, maybe a little bit older than me, but pretty much the same year, maybe 1970 born. Um, so, yeah, it was kind of normal. It was, like I said, when you were in my time, when you were like 25, they thought you were, you know. It was too old, <laughs> but then, um, um, then, then we had some issues, you know, with with Mary per Mary Pierce, their father, went a little crazy, and and then um, some of the younger girls, Jennifer Capriati, had some problems with the drinking drugs, and so so then they start blaming those problems on having that early success in life and making all the money that they were making on such a young age, having the parents quit their jobs and start traveling with the, like Monica Sailors, you know, I mean, obviously they quit everything they had in, in Croatia, Yugoslavia at the time in Croatia. And they came to Boletari and, and Mary Pierce's dad, you know, and mom, they, they traveled in a, in, a, in a trailer, you know, just, um, just because the girl was going to make it. So obviously when they lose a match, there's so much pressure on that, uh, young girl on the whole family because if if she loses there's no income you know so the the WTA found that that was too much um, stress on on the player so they said okay you can only play so many tournaments you know before you're 18 and uh, and that will hold them back a little bit and was really was Coco was kind of the first one that kind of broke through those rules and and uh, was able to to uh, to achieve that ranking with the part that you cannot really play too many tournaments when you're young, and but yeah, I I think otherwise there would be a lot more girls anyway being good on a young age. Girls just uh, mature a little faster than guys, you know. So it's much harder for a guy to be 16 and be that top because they're still maturing physically so much. That, uh, that it's hard to compete, you know. But with the girls, they, they're at 16, they can be already completely matured, so. So are you a, are you a fan, Brenda, of the WTA age restrictions or no? Or do you just think, you know, individual basis? I, I think uh, I'm not a fan of the restrictions just because I think people, I mean, if you see high school kids or 15, 16-year-olds, there's a lot of kids that use drugs and drink and you know and and they put pressure on themselves and then now the juniors became almost like the seniors now the only thing that they cannot do is the parents cannot really quit their job and start traveling because the girl's not making the money but now they're just finding sponsors in the juniors already so it's still a lot of pressure i don't care if it's you're making money you're not making money um i don't know if if I would have been this level, if uh, if I would have had to wait 
late because then I probably would have had to go to university because I wasn't making any money at 16. Now I was making money and I, I could, I could, you know, afford to, to travel and to play. But if I wouldn't have made money at 16, 17, my parents would have never afforded it. So then I would have been stuck. I would have been had to wait till I was 18 and then probably gone to university. And, and if I was going to go to university in Holland, that there would be no tennis. So hopefully I would have gone to university in America. And then who knows if I would have missed that, that connection that I had when I was 16 and I was on the top of my game at 18, 19, 20. I don't know. You know, it would be a whole different thing. So, um, I think they should have certain rules for the parents, how to act and how to be and, and give a lot of um, guidance to the player and say, okay, these are the things that are going to happen to you when, when you're this good at this age. But, you know, obviously right now they're breaking through anyway through all the rules. So, Yeah, <laughs> I had a, um, a, 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 a parent who, you know, had a child when they were, you know, 15, 16 year old girl back then that, yeah, was petitioning for like, why wouldn't you just provide resources instead of providing limitations, which is kind of, you know, what, what you're saying there of resources for the parents of how to handle it better, but not just limiting how much the girl can play. Right. Yeah. yeah. I think that's, I think that's good. On that note, on the coaching, you, I know you've had a bunch of experience coaching. Uh, which one do you prefer coaching the, uh, you know, coaching Lauren Davis at the U.S. Open or, you know, doing the work you do, you know, with just, I call it the everyday kid because that's who I work with all the time. Um, and, you know, teaching somebody how to hold a grip for the first time or, you know, that, that excitement when they just hit their first ball in. Which, which do you prefer? Yeah, I had my tennis camp here, but now changed to a holistic healing camp. Um, but I started it as a tennis camp after I quit the tour because I hurt my back. I had a herniated disc. So I, I tennis was over at that time, right? So I'm 30 years old. I'm like, okay, what am I going to do? So I started this, this tennis camp here in the mountains because I believe that when I was young, when I was 12, and I, you know, I, I went to school and then I took the bus, went to tennis lessons, and I got home, did my homework, and you know, that was, that was it. So it was tennis and schoolwork. And I felt that the camps out there, the tennis camps, it was just, you know, six hours a day of tennis. And I felt you only needed about two hours in the morning and two hours in the late afternoon when it's a little cool. And then in the middle of the day, there was time left to go paddleboarding or to go kayaking or to go tubing in the river, to go horseback riding, to have that fun. So in in uh, in 1920, I, 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 or 1920, 2000, uh, when 2000, 2000 exactly, um, 1999, we bought this farm here, and with the with the mindset of of giving the kids tennis, and um, there's four kids on the court, right? Especially in the morning. So it was all over the place. So you had the, the kid that was top in Florida and the juniors. And then you had the kid that I had to help tie their shoelaces, right? And I enjoyed the, the last court because we had 
from one to ten, and the ten, the chord number ten was either the youngest kid, but it was the lowest level, and then the number one chord was the highest level. And tell you the truth, I mean, I enjoyed being at the number one chord, telling them what to do. It was sometimes a lot easier for me because it wasn't too far that I remembered how to train, right? Then going to the lower level chords that I had to learn a lot how to, you know, how to teach somebody the grip, how to, yeah, how to begin a surf. So I was so talented with my surf that I really didn't have many of the beginning, um, yeah, how do you say that, training aids, you know, to, to, to make it easier for an eight-year-old kid to learn how to surf or to get the right continental grip or you know, I mean, I learned so much uh, of, of different exercises that this other kids that actually went to school to become a tennis teacher, tennis coach in Holland, you go to school for it, you go to university and it's four years and you become after the four years you're done, you, you, you're a tennis teacher and it takes four years and the fourth year you do an internship. So I, I actually got my tennis coaches from Holland and they did their internship at my tennis camp. And they knew so much more how to teach these little kids how to play tennis than, than I did. Um, but over the years, I learned a lot. And it made it exciting for me to be on with the, with the kids that were just starting out or the, the very advanced kids. Now, yeah, I, sorry. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll have a day where I teach, you know, tiny tots and then the next lesson after that is you know the number one junior in the country in 18 and unders and then it's ladies 3-0 practice right. and then it's men's you know singles practice and you know all of it eventually yeah gets to where it's just as fun and just as rewarding but yeah it's, it is it's a lot of learning right because i also did the ladies weekends here and it was like the 3-0 4-0 and sure. what I found is they didn't want to learn that much technique and it was not long enough, a long weekend to, to teach them a lot of different techniques, just the basics. But the strategy became so important too when, when you are uh, working with ladies and or, or men, you know, older people that, that play tennis, but uh, the strategy becomes very important too at that point. So it was, it, it was, it was all over the board, but I have to admit that it was a lot of fun to coach somebody like Lauren Davis and be back in the Grand Slams and just to see your friends and, and to be on that level. And, you know, you learn so much from making it from nothing to 30 in the world. And then I was like five years stuck at 30 in the world. And then at 24, when I met my husband, I finally broke through to top 10. And from 30 to 10, you know, I, I learned so much that I can help those type of players because that's uh, still fresh in my memory how I did that. You know? Yeah, <laughs> no, absolutely. And, you know, to sort of talk about it there, you, you talk about working with Lauren Davis, obviously someone who prides herself on her fitness. And when you got back into, you know, coaching high level pro tennis now, uh, the the way the modern game has changed, do you think there's an additional important, you know, a an additional stressing of the importance of fitness of nutrition in a way that maybe wasn't when you were playing? Oh, for sure. I mean, it has. Uh, everybody stepped up the game a lot. They had to um, because the rallies and the, and the game became so high high level i mean if you watch like Djokovic and the, the match that they had in melbourne in the finals for six hours 
banging that ball back and forward like 40, 50 times. I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, it's like, it's almost like biking the Tour de France, you know? I mean, it's it's the level that you beat up your body on, on a daily basis is, is just so much that you have to start eating the right way or, um, you know, working out the proper way because your body just cannot handle it. I mean, you see people making it, but they maybe stay in the top for a couple of years. But the people that stay in the top for 10 years, 15 years, like a Federer, I mean, it's just... They, they have to do something right. Or they had to change at some point in their career, like I had to do when I was 25. Uh, me and Sean, we went to some seminar from Anthony Robbins, and uh, there was somebody talking about um, uh, how not to get cancer. You know, he was the head of the Cancer Institute, and um, he quit his job because he said it's real simple. I mean, if you stay away from these 10 particular foods at the time, what was kind of like hydronated oil, and, and all the fake sugars, the aspartame, the, um, the decaf, the, it was like 10 things, margarine. And we went pretty much, we went back and we thought that we're eating fairly healthy, but in our yogurts was the fake sugars. And every cereal box we owned was hydronated oil. Uh, the margarine was easier to put on your sandwiches, but was definitely not good. So um, this was the time that there was not even that much organic out there. That was maybe a couple of years later, we realized that we had to go organic too. But um, yeah, we changed so much in my diet. So like I said, you know, making that step from 30 to top 10, uh, the workouts, I mean, I worked out hard my whole life, but sometimes maybe not smart. And I think the people now, you know, I, I remember when my husband ordered one of those ropes that you, you know, swing um, for your underarms and, and he ordered cattle belts. And that was now I had the camp here. So that's when I came back. So that's 2004, 2005. And I remember everybody looking at him like, what the heck are you ordering? And now everybody's working out with the rope, the kettlebells. But he was always kind of ahead of the game. Um, he was a football player in college. So first thing he did, and I joke around, we wouldn't be married right now if he didn't. He went to buy a video camera uh, because he told me, he said, you're kind of straight up. You're not really moving, you know, whatever. And I said, what do you know? You know, you're a football player. You don't know anything. So he said, now I know one thing that I watched more film than I was on the field. And I think you need to see yourself play when it's the last time you saw it. So just watching that uh, made everything else kind of easier to, to be played basketball one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, that helped my first step coming to the net, chip and charge. You know, I had to go around Sean, who's 6'5", and big guy, and actually knew how to play basketball, and I didn't. So... Um, I think there's so many things that come into place, but to come back to the nutrition, one of the reasons why the tennis camp is not a tennis camp anymore and it's a holistic healing camp is because we, we felt so sorry for all these young kids that have had allergy medicine, then they had ADHD medicine. Um, some of them had so many really you know, drugs that they were taking that had side effects and the parents had no idea about the side effects and about the drugs that they were taking that we still do tennis at the camp, we still have the courts, but, you know, we said, I think you're foreign and your back, it might be a problem, but 
you know, you might want to change your your food, your your you know everything you do because those drugs you're taking that's way worse than you know being a tennis player. I mean, it was just so much more. We start helping people with so much more than just hitting a tennis ball. So yeah, we're definitely very into the health part, the the wellness, the yeah. Also with players on the tour, you know, they they they. When I still go to this day, I go in the trainer's room and it's like, yeah, I have some Gatorade, and then have some Advil and you'll feel better. And it's just like, oh my gosh, you know, the level is just still not there where it should be. And that's why I'm so happy, Mark, that you came out with that, you know, 99% organic bar. Um, yeah, no, you were uh, you you were definitely one of our, you know, one of the people that when you when you liked it and when you know, I mean, your first thing you did when I handed it to you was you know you flipped it over and went to the ingredients and went, okay, that's good, that's good, that's good. Oh, I like that. You know, I enjoyed then, that bar right away a lot more when I saw the ingredients. You know, <laughs> was sure, but it was you know some sometimes we just give it to people and they're like, oh, it was made by tennis players. Good, I like it, but. Yeah, you definitely uh, did a little more investigation into it, which is what we hope. You know, that's actually one of our challenges as a company is educating people. Um, and exactly like you said early in your career and, you know, Andrew, who you met up at Forest Hills last year and myself. Right. We I don't know if Mark, are you still there? I think we lost him for a second. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, exactly. It happens to the best of us, uh, but he will pop his way back in. I will use this opportunity then to sneak in a question. And when Andrew and and I were, you know, discussing creating the bar, it was it was because when we played at a you know high level in college and then some low level pro stuff, we didn't we were working hard on fitness and we didn't understand any nutrition really, you know, right. so we weren't getting that much out of it. Yes, so, yeah, nope. it's quite, quite, quite important. How would you, so when you worked with Lauren, what was her fitness and nutrition like? Uh, the nutrition was interesting because her uh, father wrote the book of, um, I forgot the name of it. It's something like the, something about gluten and about bread and so she was she was already aware of those type of things um that those type of things maybe you could be allergic to although i i eat organic bread that we bake ourselves and my boys eat it too so i don't see sometimes as much problem with the bread i see how it's made what's in it it's it's really bad when you buy it in a grocery store right right and it's the same as the milk, and we actually bought some cows now, and we're milking every morning, and we have that raw milk uh, just, you know, from the cow straight. And then the milk is really not that bad for you because you don't even – but, you know, when you buy it from the store, it, it's just really hard. So, um, yeah, I mean, Lauren was very into learning into learning those things. I mean, when we started with her, she was like 130 in the world and we got her to 26. Um, and then her mom got a little word about the, the, the way that Sean does things. My husband, he does a lot of energy healing and it's kind of deep sometimes. And it went a little bit too deep, I think for Lauren's mom. And 
yeah, it was it was just a difficult time. We broke up. Sean went with her to some tournaments. My husband and I went with her to some tournaments. We had to also run the camp here. Um, but uh, but yeah, the fitness, everything together. Like I said, what I kind of learned to go from 30 to to top 10. I try to teach her, and it was just she's like a sponge, you know. She really picked it up very fast. Um, it was just like I said, she didn't have much help from um, her her mom. Her parents are divorced. Her mom and her grandparents were not all on board what we were teaching her, and at gotcha. one point, kind of had to learn the hard way because she went back to like when she quit with us, she went back to. 300 in the world um and luckily there was a, a boy that was in my tennis academy uh that i that i had for for four years in florida till i came back on the tour with all that knowledge at 36 i played again and hit that 130 miles an hour surf but um there, there was a guy in, in my academy program from when he was 13 till 18 and then he went to college he went to northwestern so he he is helping her out right now, and he totally buys into our whole thing. So even that she's not working with us, he got her back through the TETS system, we call it the TETS Foundation, but that's what we're running, and it's TETS, T-E-D-S, T-E-D-S, what you think, eat, do, serve yourself and others. And he, you know, worked out with us for five years straight, um, and he, he's doing that same method now as Lauren, and at least he, he got back to being, I think she's about 50 in the world right now, something like that. Yeah. So worked her way back in. And, um, yeah, so just, I mean, she can hit a tennis ball, right? I mean, there's so sure you can always improve the serve a little bit because her backhand was just, like, crazy good. Uh, there's really nothing much to say about the backhand. And then the forehand we worked on a little bit. Uh, the volleys we actually worked on a lot. That was pretty messed up when we first started. Um, so that went a lot better. Um, but, but the serve helped her a little bit. I guess a couple months ago, Eddie came to me. That's the guy who was working with her. And he said, hey, what do you think about that? A little bit more rhythm. I said, hey, I totally agree. So, so it's fun. You know, we still talk and go over things that improved it again a little bit the serve because she's five foot one i think so obviously me being six three and she being five foot one it's a whole different technique that you're looking at you need to get more air out of your legs in order to get that same angle that i can get so, for sure yeah but yeah she definitely sorry she, she definitely learned a lot with food and, and, and working out. And when she did it, it was amazing. She also stopped doing the workout. I mean, Mark, you know, you know, you get on that level and it's not always easy to wake up in the morning and do your workout because it's just not easy. It, it's The result is great, but it's hard work. You know, there's really no, no ways of, around it. Yeah, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. 
No, and you know, you talk about that hard work, and obviously, you've gotten the chance now to share the things you've learned as a coach. But you know, reflecting on your, you know, the thing, the advice you've given players, reflecting on your own playing career. Do you think there's a such thing as overtraining? Do you think that's something that a lot of players do where you, you sort of mentioned it early in your career, you spent a seven efficient hours on the court where you got really good hitting in. Is that sometimes better than spending, you know, six hours a day on the court? Yeah, for sure, because it's all muscle memory. So when the kids are six hours on the court, but three hours they're just looking on their watch and they're kind of like, man, is this over? Because especially in Florida, you know, we have bad Nick Volatari and stuff. It's so hot out there. So, you know, when I said, hey, we go full tilt and you run. I mean, Jimmy Connors was a was a big um, advocate for, for not too long, but go for everything, run everything down. Um, and that, that really worked. Even Brett Gilbert said to me one time, I said, hey, how long do you think you should be on the court? He said, no more than three hours a day when he was working with Andy Roddick, you know. And I think it's because you, you, the quantity, I mean, it's just so important. Tennis is such like a, you have to do it quick. You have to get to that ball quick. It's not a marathon out there. Even though that the points can be long, like I said, you have long rallies and stuff. So your stamina does have to be a certain level. But it, it is a sprint. Most of the stuff is short, short work. So if you start doing it slow... And you see them walking around and kind of walking to a ball instead of getting quick, then that's that muscle memory, and that's probably hurts you more. It's nice to be out there, but your body remembers how you're moving, what you're doing. So definitely better to be out there. And if you can be out there six hours and full tilt, hey, you know, that's your talent then. But <laughs> I, I, I couldn't do it. <laughs> Well, I'm going to give the slight counter to that. For you, I think, and I'm not going to speak for you, but you were always playing doubles as well, right? So I'm curious, was that your approach? I mean, obviously, you were having a lot of success in both singles and doubles, but did it help you just to play more matches as opposed to spending extra time on the practice court? No, it was nice because, um, you know, you also work on your return. You work on your serve and volley. For me, obviously, in doubles, it helped me maybe more than somebody is a, is a ground stroker. But uh, in my time, again, you know, Arantxa Sanchez played singles and doubles. Um, Hingis was, you know, number one in the world in singles and doubles. I mean, Natasha Shareva was like seven in the world in singles, number one in the world in doubles. We were all doing it, you know. So I think... We were all maybe more like if you ask Monica Sellers, how many hours do you practice? Because a lot of the parents, when they came to the camp, they said, but that's not enough for my child, you know, four hours a day. That's not enough. So I took all these interviews with Monica Sellers and I would film her and I'd say, Monica, how much do you practice? She's like, oh, I wake up in the crack of dawn and then I'll play from seven to nine and then I hang out. I go to the mall, do some shopping, do whatever. And then in the afternoon, I play another two hours and I think, sure, there's always people like maybe Nadal or even Serena and Venus were out on the court a lot because I had my apartment where they were practicing in, in Delray Beach at Labors. And um, I saw him out there a lot. But, you know, Hingis had to change. You know, Hingis was out there in the beginning a lot, but then her mom caught on and said, hey, if I keep her pushing like that, she won't be able to do it. So 
they did a lot more fun stuff. She loved horseback riding. And so they, she, her mom was really smart and kind of put the brakes on when she saw that Martina maybe would get burned out a little bit. And I think you have to feel that. Like you said, do you overtrain? I mean, I think your body will tell you, you know, um, to a certain extent. And I think when I said I was training, because I never really put so many hours, even when I said I was working hard, but I start working smarter in the way of the exercises that I was doing, that I think it was more short sprint, you know, very explosive. And maybe in the beginning of my career, um, we had to run a lot of, of miles. And, and the one coach that I had, I lost like 13 first rounds. Um, <laughs> it was when I, I stopped with the Federation, with Stan Franco was the Davis Cup coach. And then I had one year that I was kind of, had to do it by myself because the Federation stopped coaching me. Um, and this is when I was 30 in the world and I went all the way back to 100 in the world. But this guy was very much into, okay, go run five miles. And yeah, to a certain extent, you have to be able to run five miles. But if you do it too much, it's that muscle, lose that explosion. So that's the part that's really important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, again, uh, your career, you have so much success. You sort of made a joke earlier that in 1995, you meet your husband, and that's how you jump into the top 10. And, you know, I'm sure he gets some credit. But for you, what helped you make that jump in 95? Again, you make back to back quarterfinals Wimbledon of the US and the US Open. Um, What allowed you to, you know, take that jump to the next level? Yeah, so now it's kind of a tough time actually because um, when I, when me and Sean, we, I was really going fast from 30 to that 10 ranking, and um, when I got to the to to 11 actually, um, my mom suddenly uh, had a aneurysm, and two weeks before we got married in 1995, she passed away. And it was like it was like a three days type of thing. Um, I flew home right away. I was in the semifinals in Delray Beach against Conchita Martinez, and uh, that's when I got the phone call. So I went home, didn't play Key Biscayne, didn't play, you know, those tournament like Amelia Island and Hilton Head. And um, she passed away. I lost a couple first rounds in Rome and Berlin, and what I did really well the year before. So my ranking kind of went back to 17, 18. And this is when I called Sean and I said, listen, my husband, I said, either I come to you or you come to me. But this is not working, being alone in my hotel room and dealing with this. I was very close to my mom. I called her after every match. And she was kind of the positive person in my life. My dad had the physical part, but was a little bit more negative. And, and my mom didn't have the physical part, but was super positive and always said, you can do it. So when that fell away, um, that's when Sean started uh, traveling with me because he said, hey, I can always be a stockbroker. That's what he was doing at the time for Dean Witter. And I said, he said, you only have a few more years that you can be, you know, this next five years is going to be, you know, your, your peak time. So uh, I'll come to you. And that's when he bought the video camera. But when we met, there was a couple of things 
that happens as as a tennis player sometime um first of all you you when i was 10 years old you would ask me or 11 i would say i'm going to be number one in the world right and slowly in my career that kind of got beaten out of me because then they say you're cocky or you're too confident and so in order to have friends I start saying now, I hope I'm going to win tomorrow. And if I really play well, I can probably make it, you know, to top 100 in the world. And and those goals uh, got diluted so much that when I actually met Sean, uh, I remember because we, we met like two weeks before the Miami Open in 19, 1994. And that's the first, I mean, I won the th- first three rounds, what I was supposed to win because I was 30 in the world at the time. And then I had to play against Arantxa Sanchez and um, in the quarters. Yeah, in the quarters. And so he says, hey, who do you have to play tomorrow? And I said, I have to play Arantxa over there. And so she, he's like, you have to play that girl? Ah, you can beat her, you know. And I said, now she's number two in the world and she's really <laughs> fast. And I played against her eight times before and I lost. But it's always close matches and she's always lucky. And uh, so he's like, you know, that football player attitude. And it's typical, my husband. He's like, now, doesn't really sound like you're going to beat her tomorrow. So I was like, you know, you. you I was like, but then he went back to work and went because he had to work on that Monday. and, And I went back to the hotel and I started thinking about it. And I was like, man, you're right. I, I probably, it's all what I believe. I. I can beat her, but I don't believe that I'm going to beat her tomorrow. So I called him back and I said, okay, okay, you win, you know, but what do I do? And he's like, now, you know, I, I read some books from Anthony Robbins. That's why we went to Anthony Robbins uh, event because he read a lot of books with Anthony Robbins. And he said, uh, when you write down 10 times in a row that you're going to beat it on Sanchez, they say that you will believe it more. So that night before I played her in Miami, I, I wrote down, I'm going to beat Arantxa. I'm going to beat Arantxa. I'm going to be, I think I wrote it down like a hundred times, right? <laughs> and the next day I go and play and I lost the first set 6-1. So I'm sure I don't know what I remember, but what I remember what went through my head at the time. But I'm sure I'm thinking, okay, this is probably the worst score I've ever had. But then in the second set, I was in the tiebreaker and I was down 6-2 in the tiebreaker. And I still have a picture and they turned it into a poster later in the Oklahoma tournament that I won a couple of times. And it's it's like there's so much. I mean, it's like I have my fist up and there's just so much fight, so much like, like maybe anger. I don't know. But I turned the match around and I won 6-3 in the third. And to beat Arantxa Sanchez in a tiebreak when you're 6-2 down and win six points in a row against somebody that's kind of known for being a wall and doesn't make too many mistakes. Um, I would say if there was any time in my career that that was the switch, it was definitely... No, definitely. And, you know, for you in your career, uh, again, uh, kind of going rapid fire here just down the home stretch, you, you sort of mentioned it. In 2007, you come back, you play an ITF event, and you win a title. What did that mean to you? You know, what led to that decision to even play an event at that point, and how cool was it to end up in the winner's circle? 
Yes, that was um, that was kind of funny because at this mind. point, you know, okay. I, I was, you know, like you said, I was 30, 37 years old. And, uh, at 36, uh, that's when my husband started learning the, the next step. He, he called it the piece that was missing in the puzzle for his uh, coaching me. And so first it was about the physical part. Then it was about the eating part. So the food that you stick in your body. And then this, this, this doctor in Paris told me when I hurt my back first, my herniated disc, and I was like a question mark, you know, my body was all crooked and I couldn't walk straight. Um, and I was in a lot of pain. He said, oh, it's all on our head. And Sean and me were like, but so how do we fix it, right? Because he fixed my head when they first said when I was 30 in the world and they said, oh, Brenda's a head case. That's why she's not top 10 in the world. He fixed it by... You know, I couldn't say that I was stupid. I, I wrote down that I was, you know, good. I, I you know, I, we worked on my head. Let's put it that way, right? But then the physical part, when you herniated the disc and, and it's an MRI and it says, you know, I herniated the disc. So how can that be in your head, right? And at that point, we, we didn't know. We, we didn't understand it. We, we didn't say you're full of it or anything to that doctor, but we wanted an answer and he couldn't give the answer. So, Sean, for those six years or five years, I think it was when they asked me to coach the, the Fed Cup team in Holland, he was searching, searching really hard for that piece of the puzzle. We had that academy program, like, like I was telling you about, about the kid that went to Northwestern, another kid that played for Appalachian State, Division One schools, and they would be in amazing shape and they would eat fairly healthy, you know, for, for what they could afford because organic food is so expensive. But what they could afford, they, they did yoga. They did everything in, in the 5% where you can touch and feel. And then Sean went to the seminar in Orlando, and it was about energy uh, testing, energy healing, about uh, muscle testing and, and tapping and, and getting the stress, eliminating the stress out of your body. So he came back and he's like, obviously, he wants to try it on, on me with my back. And then a couple of kids that we had an academy program that had issues that they started cramping in the middle of the second set. And they would be so strong as a beast. They could run five miles on the sand, full tilt. They could lift kettlebells. I mean, all this crazy stuff physically. But then in the second set, they suddenly start cramping. And... We agreed with that doctor in a certain way that it is in, in between your ears, but we didn't know the answer how to, to treat it, right? So he started doing these this things that he's learned. It was affirmation, tapping, certain parts of your body. Anyway, it worked. I mean, it was like amazing. I, I, could, I would normally get hurt if I tried to show off and play an exhibition with Andy Roddick at the time. I played this charity event every year in Boca, and he would say, Schultz, See, give me the heat. You know? And then the next day I couldn't walk for a day. Um, so he, he started trying it on me and this other two boys and it worked. And I was never in my wildest dreams that I thought at 37 that I was going to come back on the tour. I was, he wanted to heal me, especially not the other kids, but me to have kids, to have a family, to have my own babies, you know, and, and the doctor said it was going to be hard with my back situation to have kids so that was really the number one reason why he was trying to help me with it 
But obviously, I go out and I have these eight kids that I'm coaching, and I couldn't really hit my serve that hard. And suddenly, I can go out there again and and beat them up, you know, and and play sets <laughs> against them and and give them a hard time. And these are kids that are, you know, it was Arena Falcone who made it top hundred. She was one of the it was two girls in my program and six boys, and all of the boys went to to top level number one uh, division one schools. None of them make it professional, but they tried a couple, but didn't make it. But anyway, long story short, um, that 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 eliminating stress, all those things, it worked. And then the Dutch Federation asked me at the same time when this is happening to coach the Dutch Federation Cup team. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I was all excited because in my coaching career at this time, being the coach of the Davis Cup, of the Fed, Fed Cup team is very, um, yeah, it's the highest level you can reach probably. So I said, yeah, I'm in. So I went down there and I start practicing with uh, Michelle, Michaela Krajcek, Richard's sister, and these other three girls that were on the team. Um, and... They said, hey, Bren, you know, you look pretty good. I mean, can you play a double set with them? Because the one girl is, is hurt and they need a fourth. So I played this double set with them. And I won with the girl that was in the reserve in the team against these two girls that were actually playing, Misha and this other girl. And we won 6-3. And the guy was like, you're not coaching, you're playing. And I'm like, ah, you know, I... <laughs> I don't know how we're going to do this. You know, I wasn't planning on that. But I ended up playing the Fed Cup that year in Turkey. And they were such a low level that they were in the B group. And it was a tournament. And we won. Uh, we beat three countries. And I was just playing the doubles. And then the fourth country, we're in the semis. And the girl twisted her ankle that was normally playing singles in Holland. So they said, hey, can you play singles and doubles? So I didn't play a singles match in seven years and, and had to play singles in the Fed Cup team against this girl from uh, Johansson from Sweden at the time. She was young. She was 17. She actually now became a pretty high-ranked player. But I lost 7-5 in the third, and I was so sore. That, and then we won the doubles. We actually beat the team. We won, beat Sweden. And me and Misha won the Misha Krajcek. We won the double seven five in the third. The next day, I could hardly walk because <laughs> you know the stress and playing for your country. Everything comes back. So then the whole press came over me and said, "Why didn't you go back on the tour? And and why didn't you play?" Because Misha was like 50 in the world at the time, and the other three girls from Holland were about 150 in the world, 200. And so they were like, we need another top player. You know, we need you back. So I talked to my husband, to Sean, and I said, man, do you think I should do this? I really, really should have a family right now. That's what I should be doing. But uh, <laughs> instead, I came back and, and played again, you know, and that's why I played three years, because after the third year, I was actually doing pretty good. I got close to the top 100 again, and then. Uh, my sister called me. She's like, Bren, you're 39 years old. If you want kids and you want two kids, you, you better start. So I said, okay, <laughs> you know, I'll we we'll start trying. And when I get pregnant, then I quit. And then two months later, I got pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it, it sounded like you got everything you were looking, though, from that experience, right? Definitely. One of my, I, I mean almost everything because my main goal was to play Wimbledon again in the main draw 
and I didn't get that 105 ranking. I think I made it to 110. And it, I just had to start at 1500. Nobody wanted to give me wild cards. It, it just took a while to get that ranking up again um, by, by totally starting, like you said, at, at the ITF level. Um, because Kimiko Date, she, she came back at 39 that I was like, Kimiko, don't you want a family? And she's like, I've been trying and it's just not working out. So I'm done sitting at home. My husband is a car racer, so I go. So, But then they told me that I was too old and they were not going to give me any wild cards. And then Kimiko came and they give Kimiko wild cards for Wimbledon. <laughs> and I'm like, that's just not fair. And they said, yeah, the Dutch people don't watch as much TV as the Japanese. So the ratings go up when we give a Japanese person a wild card. So that was kind of tough. But, um, you know, she, she did great too. And um, so my, my two goals when I came back was to, to try to win Wimbledon like Goran Ivanisevic. You know, that still, I still make me cry when I see that finals that he won Wimbledon when he got that wild card. And, and, and you know, get my serve record back. So at that time, Venus had to pass the serve was 127. My fastest serve was 123. So in Cincinnati, when I hit that 130 miles an hour serve, that was a big thing. And they actually took it away from me two years later because they said it was in the last round of qualies. <laughs> and it was on the court, the same speed gun that Serena had later that evening. But, you know, and then, yeah, the next year I actually got to Cincinnati and made it to the quarters in the main draw. But I was playing at like 8 o'clock at night. It was not the good circumstances. So I think I made it to 126 or 127. So that's actually in the, in the books now. They don't even show the 130 miles an hour anymore. And I can show you a picture that in the World Book of Records in 2006, 2007 was 130 miles an hour. But like I said, WTA took it away from me. So anyway. <laughs> well. No, I'm glad you mentioned that because, look, if I had hit the fastest serve in tour history, I would tell everyone about it, right? That would be tattooed probably across my chest. Is that – I mean, look, you've done a lot of cool things in tennis, but that's got to rank right up there, right, having the fastest serve in history? Yeah, especially because when you're actually playing and you're playing the tour, the, the goal is to get it in and away from your opponent, right? But then mm -hmm. when you start playing exhibition – and you 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 playing uh, yeah different type of matches that they introduce you say hey Brendan Schultz McCarthy fastest serve in the world that that is <laughs> that does help a lot <laughs> yeah that has to be so cool I love to hear that well again you've been so kind with your time home stretch here of questions I warned you at the beginning you might swear okay. at me I think this is where it's gonna come uh, Zareva or Graf you could play one of them and get a win who do you pick and why. Um, Steffi uh, Steffi Graf at the end of my career when I started actually learning a kick serve I got really close I mean it was like 5-0 in the third in, in Tokyo and she actually hurt her knee that was her end of her career I came in with a kick serve out wide you can kind of imagine it um, she sliced it I put the volley not totally away and she ran and hit passing shot down the line was her forehand and passed me and broke me to go to 6-5. She could hardly stand on her knee anymore. And somehow I choked so bad and I lost that <laughs> game because I could hardly put the return in the court because I knew she could hardly run. 
But um, and then in Berlin we played the finals against each other and it was seven six six four and the first set I was three one up in the tiebreaker. I was very close to Steffi. Uh, Natasha Sareva was more like a mind game. We had the same coach Juan Nunes for two years and was one of my better friends on the tour. She has like really funky passing shots, handy. She would just make my life difficult just because. It's kind of like playing a Santoro or something. You don't know what's coming and very good returns. That's why she was number one in the world in doubles for so long. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I see myself a better shot to step. <laughs> yeah, no, that, <laughs> I, I have no problem with that. Well, then, on that, with that in mind, who would you say was your biggest rival during your career? Um, biggest rival? Now, like I said, that big win against Arantxa Sanchez was big because we seemed to play each other the most. Um, after that, when I actually became top 10, then Lindsay Davenport and me played a lot. And I actually had some wins over her. Um, she didn't like me coming into the net. She had troubles passing. She, she hated it, actually, to the point that I would play chip and charge on her first serve. Um, <laughs> so that, that was always a fun, fun match to play play but rivalry monica Seles. i played so many times and i managed to beat her once and got close so many times you know capriati we played quite a lot i i got to beat her once but should have probably won many many times um yeah just uh, we were all very close in that top 10 very close you know sabatini i never got to beat but we only played i think twice um once in the finals of Hilton Head and um yeah um I don't know one time in the quarters in Miami Open I think so uh the people that I seem to play a lot was Arancha and Monica Seles and then Venus I only got to play Venus once and I beat her so I still have that one zero against Venus <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm looking at it right now. A lot of, I see uh, uh, Rachel McKillen. There's a lot of matchups there. I see Mary Jo Fernandez. You played a bunch as well. But yeah, yeah. I imagine that one win over Sanchez. That one had to feel good. And you mentioned Monica Seles. Now, you know, over these past five and a half months before tennis restarted, we were all, or I guess, uh, you know, this shows you what, you know, this is why I'm single. This is why I don't have a family yet. But uh, I was watching a lot of old tennis matches and someone I just kept being drawn to was Monica Seles. I, you know, 18, 16, 17, 18, there's probably never been a better uh, tennis player in the world than Monica Seles those three years. Just curious, your thoughts on Seles, and then obviously you were on tour when uh, what happened, you know, when she uh, was stabbed on court. What was that moment like? Because I can only imagine what would happen, you know, in the era of social media if something like that were to occur. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it would have been a madhouse. Um, yeah. I was there at the tournament in Hamburg, and, uh, you know, it, it, it went all so fast that, that I don't think anybody really grasped really what happened, you know, even that we know she got stabbed. You right away blame it on the, the German person that obviously had a, had a mental uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> something really wrong. But, uh, yeah, it changed the whole tennis world around, but uh, especially Monica's world. I mean, gosh, you know, her dad also passed away of cancer, I think, a little bit later. Um, Young. He was young. So, um, man, yeah, it destroyed her. 
obviously. It's amazing that she even came back. But I think we all realize that when you have such a gift, that's why I enjoyed playing those three years again. Sometimes you don't realize when you're playing what you have and uh, how blessed you are to be able to be so good in, in, in something that you love to do. Um, and I think in the beginning, obviously, she was just too scared to go outside because the guy was still walking around. They let him go out of jail. So every time you're looking over your shoulder, you don't know when somebody comes again. So I think her life was living hell for a while. And I think the only way she could escape that again was coming back on the tour. Um, the only thing that she told me at the time is that in, or, in order to get over her feelings, sometimes she started eating and she said, man, I sometimes just eat three pizzas in a row because that makes me feel better. <laughs> right? So coming back to the health uh, situation, she still made it back. I don't know. What was her ranking? What she made it back at when she came back? Yeah. I believe she got she made it back to the top 10, I want to say. I would say like three in the world again. Yeah. I'm almost sure. So being obviously a couple pounds overweight, I don't know how many pounds, but not in the shape that she was when she was number one in the world when she was competing with Steffi before, she was still able to beat everybody up with not being the top of her her health, uh, her physical being. So yeah, she was amazing. You know, she's one of those players that comes around so many times and it's now Serena obviously it's a very similar game Steffi had a different game I would say uh, it's kind of like if you have Chris Everding and Martina Navratilova and you have Serena and you have like a Hannon if Hannon would be still playing you know one handed slice whole different type of game but for a power game Monica was the power game that came in at the beginning that you know we would be looping the ball back and she would just take it out of the air we still remember when she was like 14 it was just like ahi, ahi, and the ball was gone right <laughs> so and yeah. then yeah serena was kind of the one that took that to a different level afterwards now in this in this age um <laughs> but yeah it was just the power game that mary pierce played it a little bit but i would say monica was just special and now serena is special and then Steffi was a whole different, was more of a mix mix and match, more like a Hennon, but Steffi's taller than Hennon, but a similar type of look to it. Yeah, no, I agree. I think the thing that became so clear to me is we tennis fans were robbed of what was going to be an incredible 10 years of Steffi Graf versus Monica Seles matches. Yeah, and it would have. contrast in styles. Yeah, mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah it, yeah. yeah, it would have been so great. Well, again, home stretch here of questions. I promise we've kept you for more than an hour. Uh, so you answered that. I know you also, you've had a lot of cool doubles partners uh, throughout your career. One of them now is a voice tennis fans are very familiar with in Renee Stubbs. You've got to have one good Renee Stubbs story you can share with the listeners. Uh, Renee, Renee was fun because she was super positive. Um, and sometimes... Sometimes I doubted myself. That was probably one of the reasons I probably wasn't number one in the world was my talent. Um, and she was just like, I remember when we, we got to the finals of the US Open and we played in the semis. We played Gigi Fernandez. Uh, no, uh, sorry. Arantxa Sanchez and Jana Navotna in the semis in the US Open. And this is the year that I got semis with Luke Jensen, final doubles, quarter singles. So I'm playing a lot of tennis, right? And... Uh, 
stops you. I said, where do I go? You know, I'm, I'm going with Arantxa and Arantxa is on the backhand side and obviously her backhand is her stronger shot. So I said, where do I go is an important point. And Stops said, you know where to go. You go out wide. That's your biggest serve. I mean, what are you thinking, you know? So she was always super positive and just always had the game plan ready. I think that's why she likes announcing and is good at it. Because she was always, she definitely had the strategy down in tennis and was a, a learner of the game. You know, she studied the game very good, saw it good. So, yeah, she she was funny. We, we had a good time playing. Um, I also had fun playing with Chanda, Chanda Rubin. We actually won like two tournaments in a row. We won Oklahoma and then we won Indian Wales. And then we got to the finals of Miami. And those were the only three tournaments we ever played. Because she hurt her wrist right at the Miami Open. She injured her wrist and she had surgery and she was six in the world in, in singles. And and she, she never got back to that level. She had such a big forehand and my backhand became very good. So we were, we would have been, I would say that would have been like an amazing team. Like we would have been up there um, till I, I found Sabatini later, but Gabi was, um, just on her way out. So that was too bad. She retired when, after we, we played maybe for a year or two years and, mm -hmm. uh, her ranking in singles went kind of from like being four in the world to 50 in the world and the doubles, the tournament directors were super happy that we were playing doubles because, the, the most fun thing was to play with Gabriele Sabatini that it didn't matter if it was first round in doubles on an outside court, it was always sold out. I mean, it was full. And that was, that was just a blast. I always liked, that was always an entertaining uh, entertainer and I love to play, you know, for a lot of people. So playing doubles with Gabi was, was, was great because everybody wanted to watch Sabatini play. So it was great. Mm -hmm. I feel like playing doubles with Luke Jensen, how many times are you like, Luke, I just, please shut up. Like, just, I don't need to hear it right now. No, Luke, oh my gosh, Luke, Luke was <laughs> awesome, man. I Because somebody like me that doubted myself a lot and that would blame myself, uh, and with the girls sometimes can be a lot tougher, and that's why I enjoyed playing with Gabriela Sabatini or Chanda, you know, they're relaxed, they're easygoing, but some of the girls out there could be tough to play with because they would beat you up, you know, like, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, they would be like, how can you miss that ball? What's wrong with you? <laughs> and, uh, and this Luke, oh my gosh, I could miss the return in the bottom of the net. And he would be like, what's my fault? I was standing the wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, he talking about positive and, and uplifting and, you know, if it wasn't for Luke and Murphy, when my mom passed away, my husband had to go back to after the French Open to to take care of his clients that he had for Dean Winter. And he said, Luke and Murph, you take care of Brenda. And I hung out with him in Queens and practiced two and one every day with the Jensen brothers. And then the whole time in Wimbledon. And uh, and then Murphy managed to um, to somehow not show up for our mixed doubles match in the quarters in, in Wimbledon. What? The story that I know, we all stayed together in one house because I was a mess. You know, I was so I was an emotional wreck after my mom died. So uh, Mrs. Jensen said, hey, you can stay with us in Queens. They had a place. And then we went to Wimbledon and we had a house in Wimbledon and we all stayed together. And like I said, they warmed me up for every singles match. And then I played mixed with with Murph. 
and uh, you know, and then I got to the quarters. I win my my round of sixteen singles uh, against the, a girl that beat somebody before that, uh, Bazuki. Uh, she she wasn't that high in the ranks. She beat some seeded player that gave me an easy route to get to the quarters. And I won my singles six three six one in the first round, and then Natasha Shreve and Gigi played their second match doubles, win O and O six O six O. So we were supposed to play. You know, when you're third on in tennis, it normally takes an hour and a half a match average. So when the matches start at twelve, you normally think you've got to play your third match at like three o'clock. Uh, obviously, you're you're around, you know, <laughs> but. Uh, Murphy was there in the morning warming me up with Luke and uh, and then he went back house and and managed and he got back at 2:30 and we had to play the doubles at 2:15 and at 2:30 he was disqualified but again uh, poor Luke had to deal with the with the consequences you know I mean he was so pissed. He's still pissed at Murphy. He's like, Murphy, if you wouldn't have disappeared and the press wouldn't have had questions for Brenda and me at one o'clock in the morning before she has to play the quarterfinals against Arantxa Sanchez the next day, and they're hanging over the fence, wanting exclusive about Murphy, she would have won Wimbledon <laughs> that year. So, yeah, poor Murphy has to hear that one to the day he dies and and uh luke was definitely my big brother that was there a lot of times in my life when uh when when i needed a positive person there so yeah no never said anything to him no that is awesome to hear and yeah i mean if you know the jensen's are the jensen's through and through they're they're their own they're just the two of the most unique characters certainly to uh the game of tennis has ever seen well then my last question for you obviously we're all tuned into all of the action right now in new york are there any players right now in the women's game maybe in particular of the younger players who stand out to you who impress you the most um now, it's kind of hard to tell. I'm, I'm, I have to say I'm kind of out of the loop. I wouldn't know half the young players that are out there. But, um, when I watched Kokov last year, um, with so much that she could still improve on her game, she's already so good. So, again, I think mentally she's very strong. Um, and that's sometimes lacking with some of the girls, like the, the belief in themselves. And I think that's what she has going for her and then she's going to improve whatever needs to improve that she can still improve on that we all improved on from when we're 16 till a certain point so i think uh i think she's going to be always a, a tough person um to beat um you know i'm trying to think of, of some other ones out there i hope lauren will do well <laughs> she didn't do so well i guess the cincinnati tournament there but Hey, sometimes you peak too soon. So hopefully she will have a good run for the US Open. Just because besides I like Lauren, I really like the coach that she has with her right now. It's almost like he's like a son. He taught my kids everything. Eddie Elliott is his name. He taught my Mm -hmm. kids how to surf, how to fish, how to do backflips. So, yeah, (laughs) I, I hope she goes a long way. Yeah, no, love to hear that. Then I'm going to throw in one more bonus. Right now, you step on court. Could you hit a serve 110 miles per hour? For sure. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's <laughs> master it. Let's get it on film. Yeah. 
Alex, Alex, I'll confirm that. We played uh, actually probably about a year ago to the day up at Forest Hills on the grass courts, and uh, and Brenda, she was still bringing some heat on the serve. So, uh, yeah, she's she's still hitting it well. Yeah, I love to hear I love to hear that. Well, then, Brenda, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Obviously, I uh, hope you and your family stay safe and healthy and know that you are always welcome back on our show. Uh, thank you for having me, Alex and Mark. Yeah, uh, thanks a lot, Brenda. Yep, take care, Brenda. All right, see you guys. Bye. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hope you all enjoyed our conversation with Brenda Schultz-McCarthy. A huge thank you to her. I believe we said it was going to be 40 minutes. She ended up giving us an hour 15. And I mean, when I have that good of a storyteller, I'm never going to stop her, right? And so it was such a delight for me to get to have that conversation. Of course, a huge shout out to our friends, uh, Mark Aerosmith, Andrew Goldberg, for, and our friends at Aerobar for setting this up for all they do. And again, I implore you, Go to aerobar.com. Use the promo code CRACK15. That's our way we can support them. Uh, obviously, it's a delicious product, so not only are you getting a win from there, but so fun to continue to do these episodes the way you can express your support going to Aerobar, ordering yourself some Aerobars. And I'm telling you, once you do, you're not going to regret it. It's going to be the thing you turn to. So shout out to the both of them. Uh, but it's busy times in the tennis world, right? All eyes focused on New York. U.S. Open starting next week. Western and Southern Open happening right now. If you have missed any of the action, be know that you can catch up on it all through you know the mini break podcast where we recap all of the day's events, the Great Shot podcast where we preview the U.S. Open, we give our daily picks of all of the action in case you want to get in on it with our friends at DraftKings, and of course on our YouTube channel as well, video preview content on our website, articles on CrackedRackets.com, multi-platform folks. So to pick your uh, to you know get in on all of the content to make sure you're not missing out on any of the storylines, which players are looking best, which ones have a little bit of work to do, uh, be sure to follow along with us at our website, CrackedRackets.com. You need the more immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, it's at CrackedRackets. You want to message me directly, and a lot more of you do nowadays, and I really do appreciate that. Please feel encouraged to do so. I'm at GreatShotPod. A shout out, as always, to our super producers, Max Lincoln and Daniel Westoff, for the f*** of an editing job they do day in, day out. We keep them busy, especially in a time like this and they continue to get the job done so shout out to the both of them also again a huge shout out to our friends at Aerobar and Midwest Sports for their continued support it's the little behind the scenes things right it's them it's you know our friends on Patreon
Patreon, who we could not do this without their continued support. So we are so grateful to all of them. Uh, but with that being said, again, a lot of action in New York. We hope you followed along all along with us. So for our wonderful guests, Brenda Schultz-McCarthy, our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff, our friends Andrew Golub, Mark Aerosmith at Aerobar, our friends at Midwest Sports, and all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You've been listening to another edition of the Cracked Interviews Podcast. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll see you all next time. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.